Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, a filmmaker and competitive storyteller, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we break down the art and science of storytelling. This podcast is brought to you by Six Second Stories. I'm your host, Rain Bennett, and today we're going to talk about the visual, the visual aspect of storytelling, okay? We're going to start from square one, the basics, the fundamentals of all things video. Most of the stuff that I do is nonfiction, is documentary-style filmmaking. That's my background. That's what I do when I work with brands and organizations, And I think that that is, I mean, we're in a golden era right now of documentaries, but I think that kind of storytelling is very popular right now when it comes to, when it comes to branding and marketing, I think that's what people latch on to. You can still tell narrative stories and, or made up stories to get your point across, but I think authentic, real stories of real people, in my opinion, from my background, so I'm a little bit biased, but I think it's always going to be the most effective in grabbing the attention of people Okay, conveying the messaging that you want to, and most importantly, moving them to action. Right? It's it's it is about entertainment and engaging them, and you have to. It has to be entertaining to watch. It doesn't mean funny or silly necessarily, but just they have to. It has to be enjoyable to watch. But it can't just be like all fun and that's it. Most of the stuff that we're working on, if we're working with a purpose-driven company or a nonprofit, there is a real cause that we're trying to push, right? There is, we're either raising awareness or trying to raise funds or trying to sell products, but we are trying to move people to action. And I think that real stories from real people is the way to go. So today's episode, we're gonna talk a little bit about the fundamentals of filmmaking when it comes to nonfiction storytelling. 
documentary style storytelling. There's a lot of different ways of doing this. Uh, I have made a whole career off of independently produced documentaries, and that means we have limited time, limited resources, limited money, limited crew, but we tell damn good stories anyway. Here's how we kind of start doing that. So we're going to talk about video today and the visual components that that we're going to to use. Um, the next couple of episodes, we'll talk about audio, we'll talk about graphics. But in general, there is, I mean, this is, you know, when we talk about filmmaking or visual storytelling, this is this is pretty huge, right? This is <laughs> this is what we're going to see on the screen. OK, it carries a lot of weight. It should be done properly. You know, documentary style can be polished and look we've all seen documentaries that look like polished like real films like hollywood films right uh and then my style has always been kind of run and gun as they call it which means you're kind of shooting from the hip you're following the action quickly you're not stopping and setting up uh setting up scenes or setting up shots you're just kind of running and gunning it right uh i love that that format it's not for everybody you have to be skilled as a as a uh, camera operator you have to be able to not just follow the action but you know I always say keep one eye on the lens or, you know, through the lens and one eye on the action that's going around because you have to anticipate, you have to anticipate the action. So when I see a conversation going on over here to the left, and then I see the other person about to respond, like I have to anticipate that so that I can turn my camera and capture that without it being real bobbly. I love handheld. A lot of people aren't great at it, especially with smaller like DSLR cameras, like the cameras that look like photo cameras, but now they shoot awesome video. So now we're starting to see this rise, and I don't want to digress too much into this, but we're starting to see this rise on, you know, stabilization, right? Gimbals, Ronins, uh, um, um, I mean, even drones and stuff like that. Um, I feel like it's kind of inorganic, and sometimes people just use that to just hold the camera and... Uh, you know, you can see the robotic nature of it. Like, I, that's a personal thing that I, I don't really like. I, I'd rather see just regular handheld footage. But that's totally me, but it's also a, a way to cost-effectively tell a story. So, we talked last time about characters and story structure. So, let's keep it simple. We're going to talk about our characters and how we're going to represent them in the film, in the video, in the story. You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, in that case, a video is worth a million words, right? Video is everything. Video is the fundamentals of visual storytelling. This is where it starts and stops. If you don't have an engaging image to lock your audience in, I think you're going to have trouble, my friends. So today we're going to talk about how to lock them in with beautiful, rich visual images and how to do it simple so you don't break the bank. So a lot of us are familiar with documentary style and kind of the talking head interview, right? Sometimes it gets really boring, and so we need we need more than that. But we're all familiar with what that looks like, and and that's going to be what's considered a role. It's not as it's not a super popular term. B roll, I think, is more popular. We'll get there in a second. But a roll is what we would call this is your primary footage, okay? It's the footage that you use to weave together the narrative the most. So when I interview, let's say we're talking about, you know, three people and we're talking about the origin of Post-it notes, right? So we're gonna have uh, the guy that created them. I think that's a pretty cool story, by the way, too, but for another day. 
uh, someone who manufactures them and someone who uses them all the time, like a big client, let's just say. So when we're telling the story, uh, and we'll go through some history, but we'll also talk about any challenges that Post-it has faced and the future of Post-its and all that. And we're talking to these three main people from different perspectives and points of view. Uh, we're going to film them. And what they say is going to be how we structure the beginning, middle, and end, and the smaller pieces. Like we have our three acts, we'll say, just to keep it simple. And then you got a lot of segments within those acts, which is breaking it down a little bit smaller. And then you have scenes within those segments, right? So knowing what sort of topic we're going to talk about in this segment or theme or what part of the story happens here, that's all decided by what these people say. You know, we, we, we basically are putting together a story. Like if we were to write the script of a documentary, I, I like to say it's putting together a writing a story with pre-existing sentences. You guys know the little magnets on the fridge with the words and you can kind of put together the sentences. I forget what they're called, but it's basically like that. You record these interviews and yes, you try to guide them a little bit. I don't want to get into producing and interviewing skills right now, but you guide them a little bit to say what you want them to say. But a lot of times they give you these gems that you weren't expecting and and you take that and weave together your story, your structure, your foundation, your framework, whatever you want to call it. And you do that and that's your A-roll. And that's great. That's very important, clearly, right? And it's also important for us to shoot that and for it to look good. Everyone should learn the fundamentals. And then once you've learned and mastered them, then you can be creative, right? So a lot of times I see interviews and they're shot they're composed in a very strange way <laughs> um and and sometimes it's clear that that person doesn't know like your basic fundamentals of like interview documentary style interviews and then other times if it's like an espn documentary or something like that it's a creative choice and they'll throw together some funky angle just to switch it up a little bit um your typical video it depends on Depends on who they're going to be addressing, but most of the time in documentaries, they're going to look off to the side of the camera, which is where the interviewer or the producer would be sitting, just off right or off left. To me, it's distracting if they're way off, like 45 degrees. But if they're just looking here, it still gives that connection to the audience. Sometimes I'm doing a project right now where we're having our people look right into camera. That's because you want them to speak directly to the audience. You're not just telling a documentary or telling telling their story. You're having them speak directly to your audience. So that's that's a distinct a distinction you need to make early on. You don't need and you need to stick with it, you know, visually. It's pretty forgivable especially in this day and age. We're in the age of reality TV and nonfiction storytelling. So people are okay like the conventional style like I think MTV made it popular of people looking in the camera and be like, I don't know what Jason was doing today. <laughs> he was so rude. And we're going to work and blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> but the classic style is just offset, looking to the side of the camera and talking that way. Now, a lot of people are like, when I deal with clients, they're like, oh, the background's so messy. And oh, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't shoot it there because of this. And First of all, let's just say the camera does not see the things the way the eye sees them, right? The camera can see it any way we want them to. And the background is important, but it's not super important. There are a few important things, and we'll go over them right now. I don't like a bland background. I don't think anybody does. Gives you no context, no depth. You don't know what's going on. Just a white wall, which will happen in like conference rooms or hospitals and things like that, schools sometimes. Uh, yeah, 
that's going to bore people to death. You don't want them to see the talking head the whole time, but when they do, you want it to still be visually compelling. So I want something with color, you know? I want something with color, and I want something with imagery, but you're not really going to see it because a lot of times the person is going to be in focus and the background might be in soft focus. So you're not going to see those small details that a client or your subject might think like, oh, I don't want them to see my messy notebook or what's on my computer screen. It's like, Nancy, they're not going to see that. They're not going to see that anyway. But most of the time, it's not about like showing the, the, you know, the thing in the background. Sometimes you want to show the map or, you know, show whatever is here, but you can see behind me, like you just see the lamp. You don't, you don't see any detail in it. It's more about the kind of imagery, you know, if it makes the color pop, if it makes something, you don't want to distract them with the background, but I think it, 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 you're still painting a picture, right? So I think it needs to be visually somewhat stimulating, but not so much so that it takes away from their subject. To that point, depth is huge. If you want to get this effect where it's soft focus in the background, that's because the background is far away from me and and the lens is focused here in the foreground and all that's going to be soft focus in the background, right? There's a lot of ways you can affect that and we can talk about that when we get deeper, but right now we're just going to stick to the basics. So to me, that depth of field, that depth behind the subject is crucial. And so a lot of times I will... I will pack everything here in the foreground, like the camera, the subject's really close to it, the light's really close to it, I'm just behind the camera, we're all really tight in whatever space we're using so that we can get that depth behind us, right? If we can get the depth in, in front of us from the camera to the subject, that's also good, but in my opinion, that uh, that background is better. You want the, you know, I was working with some students recently, we were just doing projects on iPhones and we didn't have lights, so I tell them, hey, right now there's a window in front of me, it's getting a little later in the day, so it's kind of overcast, it's not getting a lot of natural light, but I'm getting some. But it wouldn't be good for me to have the natural light behind me because it would be blown out and I would have to be, uh, there'd have to be a lot of light on me for it to, you know, the exposure to equal out and it wouldn't just be a complete hot spot back here. So sometimes people will want to be like, oh, let's shoot with the window in the background because they see it visually and they see, oh, it's a cool, you know, shot of the cityscape. Way easier said than done. You know, the client sees that, oh, it'd be so cool to see that. First of all, the point of it is the person, the subject. It's not the background, right? That's just supposed to be there as a compliment. Secondly, you're not going to be able to see that unless you got a lot of wattage hitting that person in the face. So flip it around. Look at somewhere uh, somewhere else that gives you some nice depth, sometimes hallways or anything with a line that's kind of like, you know, drawing your, your eye away. I really love that. So the background is important, but it's not crucial. Just try to find something that's not as boring as a white wall. Now, that brings us to B-roll, the infamous B-roll. B-roll is essentially secondary footage. I'll sum it up really quickly. When you see like a news package and they say, uh, tonight, firefighters on, on Yancey Street were putting out a fire at blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you see the reporter talking. That would be your A-roll. And then they cut away to shots of firefighters, you know, spraying the hose, flames going up, people running around screaming. That's B-roll, right? Or when I'm telling the story, I'm like, yesterday I went into school and I saw Sandra there. And, <laughs> and you see you see pictures or video of me, like, walking into school. Uh, that's B-roll, right? Did you like that story? Um, So B-roll is there for a multitude of reasons, okay? First, visually, which is what we're talking about today, it's there to break up that monotony, right? It's to break up the monotony of that talking head because I'm telling you, nothing will bore your audience quicker than just to see someone talking, especially if they're boring themselves. I do a lot of stuff in the health field and deal with doctors sometimes. Man, that's a whole nother topic. 
But when you get someone that's really jargony or really scientific, you can lose people. So you got to show them, not tell them, right? Remember that? Talked about that a few episodes back. Every episode, we'll probably be talking about that. That's rule number one. So you want to visually stimulate them. You want to show them something else, right? Sometimes that's why we use these beauty shots, right? Of drones, and maybe they don't necessarily tie into what we're talking about at that point, but we see these beautiful shots of landscapes and things like that because you just, it's a visual medium. Like you got to keep them captivated by what's happening visually, okay? We can never alienate that, right? Just someone telling a story. You see that every now and then. You see commercials where it's just like a one person talking to camera. And sometimes that can be effective if the story is strong, right? But when we're telling a textured, layered you know, story, when we're making a film like that, B-roll can, can really save you. Now, one of the practical, functional reasons that we use B-roll is because of something called a jump cut. Okay, you've seen some of them if you're watching the video of this podcast, but a jump cut is when we cut from, you see there's an obvious edit. Like if I was talking here and then it cuts like that, you know, and my head's turned to the side and uh, and you see that there was a, an edit there, that's called a jump cut. And traditionally, historically, we didn't like those because it looked amateurish, unless you're using it for a purpose. If you're showing a passage of time or it's supposed to be kind of visually jarring, you'll see some directors use that in uh, in films. They purposefully do jump cuts for, for a reason. Again, going back to mastering the basics first, and then you can be creative and break the rules a little bit. So the basics are we don't do jump cuts, right? And so B-roll is there to cover up those jump cuts so that we don't see that jarringly cut footage and we don't hear you know we don't hear the audio cutting and cutting and cutting we don't see because a lot of times when we're telling we're saying a sentence in the finished product it's a bunch of different sentences cut up together and you don't want that to jump around and us see that visually so we cover it up with b-roll right however an asterisk uh Today, jump cuts are way forgivable. You know, people don't care about it so much. Everything, the production value is getting lower, right? This, everything, you know, we talked about handheld before. Um, People are really forgiving that kind of look because it's really about the messaging and really about the story these days, which is what excites me as someone who's made a career off of independent filmmaking. I love that because I never was big on using all the the polishing tools and gadgets and gadgets anyway. I wanted to get down to the to the fundamentals. So, um, if you see a lot of like a lot of YouTubers and vloggers, like jump cuts are all over that. B roll is still important, but the rules are kind of changing a little bit, which I think is exciting because now there's less limitations, right? One of my favorite uses of B roll though is to what I call like paint the scene, right? To establish the setting. So if we're, okay, I shot a film about two friends that suffered the same rare cancer in Gig Harbor, Washington. Gig Harbor is this little waterfront town in the Pacific Northwest, about an hour south of Seattle. Gorgeous, you guys. This little cute little town on the water. Well, we let Gig Harbor kind of become a character of that story. It was about these two friends, but Gig Harbor had a big place in their journey and their stories because the Pacific Northwest is beautiful. They did a lot of outdoorsy stuff together, but we just, we established where they were by showing different shots of the water, showing different uh, shots of the mountains and the, and the forest around there to kind of establish where we are. Or, you know, to, 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 to flip that, if we're doing something in New York in the concrete jungle, and we're doing something about extreme calisthenics in the park. I've done something very gritty and raw and showing, you know, 
taxi cabs blowing by and people walking and fast paced cuts. Now you're like, oh, you get that vibe. You get that we're in New York and your mind is ready to absorb like that type of raw, gritty story, right? So that's my favorite use of B-roll is to establish the setting, to paint the scene, as I call it. I love that. I love that. And you can do that with a lot, a lot of different shots and a lot of different tools. Some of the shots that we can use, and we don't have time to go too deeply into this, and you can always look this stuff up and you can always message me and I'll help you. But there's a few fundamental shots that we that we can use. One, the wide shot. The wide shot is used oftentimes to establish the scene, the setting. Also known as a, an establishing shot sometimes. An establishing shot is like, the story's happening inside this house and that like that big shot of the house on, uh, you know, the outside of the house before we go into the scene. Right. That's sometimes they tilt down into it or they just, it's a static shot of the house and you know, that's, you know, where it's going to take place or back to my school example. When we see the shot of the school first and then we see the shot of the rain and rain going in before Sandra breaks his heart. That shot of the school first is an establishing shot. It establishes the setting where we're going to be next in the story. That is also called a wide shot. And a wide shot is oftentimes people call it a long shot. These are, you know, debatable, debated terms. But essentially, it's something that includes like the whole body. The establishing shot could be like an extreme wide shot, you could call it. Now we're getting a little too nuanced and a little too, you know, into the nitty gritty. But a wide shot is just something where you see a full body with somebody. Your medium shot will be maybe waist up and you can have a a medium two shot, which is two people in it. Or you can cut back and forth between those two people having a conversation into just a medium single shot, medium shot. Close up is maybe a little bit closer like your head, right? An extreme close up might be like the eye or the fingers, you know, the fingers moving or, you know, that sort of stuff. The the handle, the the hand grabbing the door handle, like that's an extreme close-up. And all those have different purposes for using those. And you need to use them all. One of my biggest pet peeves in nonfiction storytelling or any editing that I see is people using the same shots over and over again. Not of the same thing necessarily, but if we just cut from medium shot to medium shot to medium shot to medium shot, which is about what people do, you don't see them cut from close up to close up to close up. Uh, It just, oh man, it just kills me. There's no depth. There's no purpose. Everything I want us to do, that's why we break it down to these fundamentals because every choice that we make, I want to have a reason behind it. So when I see medium shot, medium shot, medium shot, medium shot, they just left it on like the default settings and they're just shooting. I mean, medium shots will pretty much capture what you need, but they won't show you anything. The reason we punch in close, you don't, you know, you lose some of the context, but there's a purpose. You're showing what their hand is doing. Okay, the poker player, his hands on the table, his hands trembling. Okay, now without saying anything, you've shown the audience that he's nervous, right? Or cut, you know, extreme close up to somebody's eyes and you see them, you know, dart to the side. Okay. You know, they're like looking at that person or that thing to the side, or if a single tear, you know, a tear wells up in the the bottom of their eye, you know, they're sad. We're showing them and not telling me extreme close ups. I love close ups. Close ups are my favorite. Uh, I just think visually they're, they're more captivating. They're more rich. I love them. I'll use a medium shot, but I hate when I see people just cut from medium shot to medium shot to medium shot. There's a purpose. They're good for, you know, conversations and depends on why you're, you're choosing to use that shot, but at least have a reason. 
wide shots, they show a little more context. You know, now if I have a close up on my eyes and then I cut to a wide shot and you see that I'm walking with somebody else, well, then now you know what who I was looking at, right? So the wide shot gives a little more information uh, in the broader picture, which is why it's the wide shot, right? Uh, we've already talked about what an establishing shot does. So all these shots should be used. And just like we switch things up, we switch the music up, we switch the pace up. We'll talk about editing later, but you want to switch the visuals up. That's called coverage. Any good editor will tell you that, hey, I need some reverse angles of this. You know, Instead of just shooting this person's face who's working on the car, what if I shoot over their shoulder and see their hands working on the car and then cut back to their face, right? That's called a reverse angle. Or, hey, I need something to cut with. I can't just go from medium shot to medium shot because that's a jump cut and it looks like crap. But I can go from medium shot to close up to their hands to a wide shot to back to medium. Variety, people. Variety keeps them going. If you're on a roller coaster and it's just driving pretty fast on a straight line, that's no fun. Twist and turns, people. That's what we need. Okay? There's a lot of other B-roll that we can shoot as well when we're out in the field. Drones, we've already talked about briefly. They're super popular now. And if you know how to use them right, they can add a whole whole new layer to your stories and production value who makes makes it look like you know you're doing something big you know a couple drone shots oh you got a budget uh, i love drone shots i can't i can't help it and i love the water and a lot of my projects seem to find drone shots of the water in them somehow if i can make it organically fit or at least feel organically um drone shots are great um anything with stability you know gopros i got my gopro around here somewhere you saw you see it in the thumbnail GoPros are great because you can get new new angles. Angles are all about variety, right? You can hang it up on top of something inside the car, on the you know on the windshield of the car, down in this corner where you can't get a bo- your body and the body of a camera. GoPros are great. Um, time lapse. I see time lapses being used a lot, which is essentially a string of still shots that is used to show the passage of time. If you don't know that that term. It's the shot when you see like the sunset go really quickly. Also used often as an establishing shot, right? If you show that it's now nighttime and you show a quick time lapse of the sun setting, well, you've kind of established that now we're at nighttime and we're going to go watch the cast members of Jersey Shore uh, get in a fight in Seaside Heights. Anyway, you get it. Uh, So there's a lot of different tools, a lot of different shots you can use, a lot of different equipment that you can use. But think about that variety of visuals that you can that you can use to make your story more interesting. Lastly, it's not just footage that we've shot. There's a lot of options out there for stock footage, stock footage or archive footage, which is old school footage, we'll call it. That can add a whole nother level and depth to your story as well. Stock footage can get expensive, but the flip side is, you know, is it more expensive for me to fly to New York and get that shot of, of the Empire State Building or from the top of the Empire State Building? Or can I pay $100, $200 or whatever it might be to license that shot and use that? It can be a lifesaver sometimes, but make sure you have it in your budget and you don't think that you're just going to tell a whole story with all this stock footage because it will add up, Right. Archive footage is awesome, especially if you're telling a story uh, retrospectively and you're telling something from the past. When you have old school footage to pull into the story, instead of just having that talking head discussing what happened back in the day, what are we doing again? We're showing and not telling. Huge, huge. So all of this comes back to variety in our in our visual choices and the shots and the footage that we use, right? You need to keep them guessing. 
take them on that journey, take them on that roller coaster ride and keep them engaged, keep them hooked in with beautiful images, rich images and variety, right? So they stay with you that whole time. Having that variety in your in your imagery is going to make your stories so much better. My name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening and join us next time on the Storytelling Lab. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you.